You are listening to For Better Self and Net Worth. In this community, we think you'll find your self-worth comes before your net worth and everything else. We also think you were designed to go after the life you want by ditching societal norms, knowing exactly who you are as an individual, and going after your unique purpose here on this earth. Every week, Ella interviews an entrepreneur that designed the life they wanted among the challenges, naysayers, and leaving outside their comfort zone. Or you're going to hear straight from Ella, where she talks about the important lessons she's learned in life and how she's achieved the overall happiness she has. This is Ella, the host for Better Self and Net Worth. Based out of Nashville, Tennessee, she makes every single day an adventure. You'll always find her right here behind the microphone, sharing all her thoughts with all of you. And we appreciate you listening and hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to you for Better Self and Net Worth. I am so excited and honored today. I have my friend Rose Watson with me. Rose is a life coach and founder of the Healed Wives Club. We've been friends for four years. She was even my boss for a second. So Rose, if you'll go ahead, introduce yourself, give us a background of who you are and how you got to be the founder of the Healed Wives Coach in a full-time lifestyle our healed wives club and a full-time life coach. That's okay. I trip on that all the time. <laughs> it's like the healed wife course, the healed wives club. It's a mouthful. Um, thank you so much, Katie. Uh, I'm Rose Watson. I am a life coach. I've been a coach for nine years and I love God and I love people. That's how I describe myself. And I've always had a heart for self-development and psychology. I actually went to college for psychology, dropped out, paid off my student loans with my life coaching. <laughs> and cool. I've, I know it's so funny, but I've always been weirdly fascinated with the human mind and with our social behaviors and the things that drive us and the things that stall us and circumventing that. Right. Um, and I've always been fascinated with helping people even if it's just someone working on something or manual labor or me seeing someone who needs help, I've always like, I like to jump to help to people, help the people. Um, I mean, I like to jump to help the people. <laughs> no, people say you won't use your psychology degree or very small chance, but you use it. I used it at Verizon. I used it as a marketing person and I've, I've used it all my life. Yes. I just don't do it professionally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like to say that all the investments I've made, whether they resulted in what I wanted to get or not have always been like, I always, when I, when I decide to invest in something, I'm going to come get what I, I'm going to get what I came for. Right. But my business, I get an associates and business admin. Now that I have a business, I can say I never really used much of that, <laughs> but the psychology one really like that was way more interesting to me. Um, and what was the rest of your question? 
How did I come to be a coach? How did you come to be a coach full time? When I was 21, I was bartending and I could not keep money to save my life. I've always been really good at making it, really great at spending it. Yep. Challenged at holding on to it. Just having money was difficult for me. And so (laughs) say that again. I said, that's most of us. I know. Isn't that fun? Money is such a great teacher if you let it. Absolutely. I think even though people who are, it doesn't matter how much you're making, 80% of Americans of all income levels live paycheck to paycheck. Consumerism, advertising, marketing, it's ingenious. A lot of psychology. <laughs> you know how to get so, that. I know. So when I was 21 and not making as much, but also spending a lot, I went on the search like online, you know, there was blogs and things. Blogs were blogs were your main form of consumption back then. Like that was everybody's content. <laughs> and so I found a blog uh, from a woman named Meadow DeVore. I don't even think she does coaching on money or anything like that anymore. But back then she had a course and she mentioned her coach, Brooke Castillo. And so I went and followed Brooke's blog and it was like, love at first read. It just made so much sense to me. So I learned everything she had to offer. My husband, um, we were poor as church mice back then. And it took us time. And he actually reminded me of this the other day. He cashed out his 401k so that I could get this certification, which kudos to my husband. He's like, (laughs) he had my little like 23 year old self. Then at that point, he had a lot of faith in me uh, and my ambition. So anyway, so I certified through her um, so that I could coach myself mostly. And everything I teach now came first through personal use and my own personal experience. I originally found coaching looking to solve my money spending issue, but that led into overeating and then my overdrinking. And finally now all these years later into betrayal trauma coaching. So that's how I've made my way here. There's been a lot of stuff in between. Um, but it's been a wonderful journey and I feel like I'm just chock full of solutions for people to help end tons of suffering and unnecessary suffering and pain and just help them solve those problems that they can't seem to get a hang of. So I feel like you're a natural at helping people find solutions. Oh my gosh, Katie. Thank you. Just, I, that's so heartwarming. I picked up on that when I first met you. Tell me more. (laughs) Don't stop. I'm so glad this is recorded. Yes. Yeah. You find solutions, even if it's, you know, cause everybody has something that they're looking for, whether it's time management or when you have a goal at your job, your goal is, okay, this is what I want. Well, why do you want it? You have people question it and it comes down to a human need. Yes. So for a lot of people at work, it's not necessarily getting paid. They want to feel valued. They want to feel seen and heard. Right. Right. It's super Yeah. I've the other half of my life, I feel like is leadership development. And that was always just, they kind of go hand in hand, you know, leading teams and, um, just even being a great colleague, my coaching came in really handy to help my employees. And because it's not like if it's so 
it's a lie to think that your work life doesn't impact your personal life and vice versa. Yes. And so much of the time when someone's experiencing a dip in their productivity or they're, or they're feeling disenchanted with the job or whatever might be happening for you, where you feel unhappy in your job, there's always generally not always, there's usually something on the personal side that needs to be addressed as well. Um, and if you're not loving your job, then that kind of bleeds into your personal life. And so you can always kind of go to the root cause and figure out what's really going on here. And unfortunately, especially in the corporate world, we're constantly just trying to manage someone's results. Hey, get this done or their actions. You know, we're not actually managing their thoughts and feelings, figuring out what they're thinking. That's creating that result. Yes. Um, we're just like, Hey, go be better. And they're like, I'm trying, I don't know what's going on either. I want to be better. And, you know, it's just like this, um, a cyclical kind of a self-sabotage type thing. Like they, they don't know why they're not getting the results that they need to be getting. They don't know why they don't feel motivated to go do the things they're supposed to do, you know? And so all they know is that they keep failing. And so that's not a recipe for success. That's not going to help them change. Very few people are motivated by consequences like that. Yes. So in the corporate world, that's a whole nother topic. That is a, is a huge topic, but yeah, a lot of people stay in companies because of who they're working with, the culture mm-hmm. and just how the company makes them feel versus what they're getting paid or just, you know, 401k, all the, all the other things. Yep. When I went to the company that you work for, I left, I left the job I was at because of culture and was totally willing to take a pay cut. And it's just fascinating to think of now the girl who like <laughs> doesn't has a problem keeping her money, you know, goes from like one job to making less money, even though I was really good at spending my money. Right. Yeah. Purely because of purely because of culture. So yeah, you're right about that though. It makes a huge difference. And you're still a part of us because we still all talk to you. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm still part of the family. <laughs> still have meals with you. Mm-hmm. When we can. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well, tell us, uh, tell us about someone that inspires you and who you think of when you're making important decisions in your coaching business. The reason I ask this, because recently the president of Ukraine is known to tell people to keep pictures of their family at their desk when they're making important decisions and how it will impact them. So I was inspired to ask you, who inspires you when you're making important decisions with your business? Oh, that's, that's so cool. I'm glad to say that I do have pictures of my husband here in my office. (laughs) And he's a cool guy. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, Say that again. He's very funny, works hard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate him so much. He's the reason that I'm able to do what I'm doing, that I was even like able to leave. Right. Like he's the security behind my, my leaving the best job I've ever had, which was the hardest. That's the hardest thing ever is to leave a job that you love. Right. Um, in pursuit of this one big dream of mine and he supports me in so many different ways, but financially, you know, you're just like, well, we're stepping out on a limb here and he has just come in. Right. And so 
Yes. I love that. He's my biggest cheerleader, but hmm, someone that inspires me. I was going to say, he's helping you take a step back so you can take a giant leap forward. That's correct. Yeah. And again, has his faith in me in the times where I'm doubting myself because business is a beast, man. Like it's hard. Having your own business is difficult. It's, it's very rewarding. It's very fun, but it's very challenging. And every insecurity that I've ever had just kind of pops up every now and then. <laughs> oh, yes. And so when I'm in a, in, in a moment of doubt, like a normal human being, he's there to remind me of why I'm doing it and of my capability and, you know, and he believes in me when I don't sometimes. So it's very good. Um, so there's a lot of people I'm inspired by when I look at their businesses and I think, okay, well, if she can do it, I can totally do it. She's forging the way, right. There's a lot of different business owners I could tell you, but because business is such an interesting beast, like mine has been a low, slow burn from when I started at 23 to where I am now. And this last year is the first time I've been full-time in my business and that I've been able to really make it a priority and pour a lot of energy into it. And so my perspective has changed. I think of like when I look to other coaches in the past, it might've been to see what they were doing. Right. Like, yes. what are they doing? I just need to go do that. And I've shifted now to realizing that what works for other people doesn't always work for you. Business is so incredibly nuanced and unique to the individual. And when I was looking outside of me to be, find inspiration, it was just, again, looking outside of me. It was like, I didn't, I wasn't tapping into my own inner wisdom, asking myself, what do I feel like I should do? What do I think I should do? I know this woman and my client better than anybody. What would I like? What do I want to do? What do I want to try? And then analyzing my own results and evaluating them. What's working, what's not working for my person, right? Because the people I'm calling in are different than the people these other people I'm looking up to are calling in. Yeah. So, so it's like, well, am I going to do what they do? Be like them. And <laughs> not that you can't get some ideas and test some things out, you know, and throw some stuff at the wall. That's business PS throw stuff at the wall, see what sticks. <laughs> and, but not that you can't do that. It's just that in the end, you trying to fit yourself into the mold of some other, like how to, or some other course. Okay. I am like a, it's offensive. How many courses I have purchased in an attempt to find the answer outside of myself. Right. Like, do you have any courses that you've just not even taken? They just felt like this will be the answer. I've got, yeah, I've gotten the course bundle. I've attended a lot of podcasting master classes. <laughs> Uh, I've talked to my coach and she said, okay, you're freaking out because you want to do a podcast and hear a lot of other people starting podcasts. Well, how many people can podcast like you? None baby. Yeah. She said, you've got to just show up authentically Mm -hmm. and you're going to attract the right community, the right listeners, the right clientele. Yes. Like your people will be attracted to you and the people who aren't will be turned off by you. And that's perfect. Yes. That's perfectly like fine. Here, yeah. You're here for 
the ones who want you, you know? And so again, like, um, but just get back to that question. Like when I think of like making important decisions for my coaching business, every morning I sit down and I really like when I'm, when I'm writing my thought downloads and I'm dumping my brain out and kind of preparing my, my mind and my body for the day, there's a whole lot of prayer that goes into that. And so if I was to have a picture on my desk, it would be a picture that I like to me identifies Jesus, probably who is my business partner. Mm-hmm. There's coaching is serving. Selling is even just serving. Selling is serving. Right. And so when I think of like who I want to take counsel from or be most inspired by, it's probably the person who served the best in history. And I mean, I would confer with him, you know, if it's not in alignment with the values of like my faith, then probably don't want to do it. And I'm always trusting that God's like right there with me. He's like whispering always like, this is the path you need to take. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's really challenging, like then I can rest assured he's going to give me everything I need to take that next step. So why not take the step that is like (laughs) divinely inspired? Yeah. Yes. I think I'm going to put selling as serving on my letterboard. It is though. It is. It's so true. True selling, true, true, clean salesmanship isn't greedy. It's not creepy or icky or self-serving. It's like, it's yeah. Yeah. It's about my person. And like I tell people all the time, I feel like I have the cure for cancer even more now than I used to. And if I wasn't out there hawking my wares, like yelling and screaming and shaking people, like just wake up. I have this for you. You need it. You know, like, and what would I even be doing? Like my life would be in vain (laughs) if I, if I wasn't out there sharing this, trying to show people and then help them like give it, give as much away for free as possible. Like, yeah, you have to make a living, but like go out there and serve. You don't have to, I don't know. You just, you don't, you, it, there's, I think sales gets a really, um, bad vibe, but it's because so many people do that. Right. But like, there's some, there's some serving that a lot of people miss out on when it comes to selling. They just don't see that. Like you're here for the people, but anyway, that's a whole nother podcast. I get really fired up about that. I like that though. Yeah. I like where you're going with that because I've always gone in to say, okay, how am I going to help the person that I'm talking to? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And we were talking about attracting the right kind of client. Who do you think your ideal client would be? Anybody who needs help. Oh, <laughs> uh, people with humans with thoughts. Um, I, so because I've made this transition in my business towards helping women, post-affair women who are um, healing themselves and their marriage after having experienced infidelity. Uh, my ideal client right now is that woman who has decided to stay in her marriage after discovering an affair or multiple affairs and wants to work through with her husband. Her husband's probably showing up. He's doing all the quote unquote right things. And she's still experiencing intrusive thoughts. She's still um, feeling very distrusting and insecure, insecure about her relationship, insecure about her body, insecure about her own um, self-trust, Right her own identity. Like, who is she even? So that is my, that's my woman, the one who 
knows that maybe she's part of the problem at this point and that she's hindering the healing of their marriage. And so that's my lady, whether she ends up deciding to leave her marriage or stay, she's the one she needs to heal and she knows it. Yeah. How common do you think it is for women to experience infidelity? Because I feel like I keep hearing a lot of authors even Mm -hmm. I'm reading Glennon Doyle. She talked about her husband having multiple affairs, Liza Turkhurst. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So based on all of the reading and research that I've been doing for the last four years while I was healing my marriage, there's, there's varying degrees. First off, different countries and different cultures have a different, they have like even a differing definition of what betrayal is or what an affair is. So that in and of itself is very fascinating. But if, when it comes to America, if you just, um, the polls that they have done, if you take them by County, they vary from 20 to like 20% kind of at the lowest, like mm, LA, for example, 60% of people say that they have been unfaithful. They have been unfaithful in their relationship. So these are the people that are admitting to being the unfaithful partner, which is mind blowing because when you think about the taboo, there's, um, it's kind of like a known skew, I guess you could say it's agreed upon in the polling world when it comes to this specific topic that people won't answer honestly, even if it's anonymous out of fear of being caught. So when you think like the 20%, 25% range, it's like, mm, <laughs> that's a very conservative number. I was going to say that's lower than I would think. Oh, yes. Yes. So, but, but this is not a new thing, right? Like since the beginning of time, there's a reason one of the 10 commandments is like, don't check out your friend's wife. Like (laughs) don't holler at your friend's girl. Like there's a reason why it says don't commit adultery. Right. It's because hello, that was a problem. It made it on the 10 commandments. It's been around since (laughs) literally. What has changed is the way we romanticize marriage. And that's relatively new in the last like 200 years. I'm reading a book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. And it's just like uh, talking about the history of how the poets, uh, certain certain poets around in the 1800s started kind of writing about love and romantic love and passionate love. And that if you didn't have these things, then you shouldn't get married. And that if you didn't have those in your marriage, let's say they fade off because that usually generally lasts 12 to 18 months, according to research, before you kind of start to like those chemists, all the chemicals that are happening away. And so like, if you've lost that, they would say that you shouldn't be married. Like, oh, something's gone wrong here. Well, that's pretty new. So like adultery has been around this whole time, but our definition of marriage changed. And so you see, so it's like, oh, if I feel, um, it's called limerence or like a lusty, like fantasy love is what limerence is. Um, people who engage in affairs generally are in a state of limerence, right? Like they don't care about the consequences. Um, it's super exciting. There's, that like, um,
they're kind of in a fog. They feel like they love this person and they don't love the other one. They're constantly comparing the affair partner to their spouse and the spouse will never measure up to the chemicals that are happening in limerence. And so when you're like married for 10 or 15 or 30 years and you have limerence for someone else, and you've been told your whole life that this is what love is, it makes you doubt the marriage you were in. Yeah. That makes sense. And you think this is who I'm supposed to be with because I have these feelings and we've been told our entire, mine, your yeah. entire life. Yeah. We've been told for like the last 200 years that like this feeling is what you, you want. It's, it's what you're after. It's your mate. And so you run after that because you think, well, if it feels this good, surely it's right. Yeah. We're but so- it's not. <laughs> we're sold quick romances. In mm-hmm. every movie we watch and every TV show, we're sold, we're basically sold limerence. We're not necessarily sold upon a stable relationship and what it looks like. Right. And so it's like that historically speaking, people understood that when you choose marriage, it wasn't always about romance. It was about stability. It yeah. was about like, um, can this person take care of me? Can they protect me? Is this going to be a healthy environment to raise children in? Is this a family that I want to be involved with? Cause you know, it'd be like the uniting of two families and there would be a dowry and there would be exchanging of animals and property and stuff like that. Yeah. And so the decision being made, it was a decision. Whereas now love is like, Oh, just meant to be, it's, it's like, um, founded on this, this emotional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you have feelings for somebody, it's your subconscious is leading the, you to them for some reason. I mean, mm-hmm. I told you off the air that the three serious relationships I've been in were with alcoholics. That's not a relationship that can survive. No. Where do you think that came from for you? I think for me, it came from my social circles. So I moved around a lot growing up. So it was harder to establish long-term friendships. Well, my friendships in college were people that I used to go out and party with. And that's where, how I remember bonding with people. It's just going out, drinking, singing country songs at the top of our lungs, you know, screaming our fraternity and sorority names, just all the, it was all the fun and camaraderie. Um, right out of college, I moved to Nashville. Nashville is a party town. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's about going to the bars drinking. And that's how I'm, that's how I made my friends. So I used to associate alcohol with my social life. Yes. Which isn't super healthy because, you know, I'm a nerd in class. I would be the person that always raised my hand, always had insights, always had fun. That's not always societally looked at as the cool person, but going out drinking, that was, that was how you made, that was, I thought how I made friends back then. Right. And being a pastor's child, I wanted to kind of get away from the Christian circles just because I didn't think they were as much fun. Right. Alcohol. <laughs> Alcohol. <laughs> the great fun goggles, right? <laughs> right. But by the time I reached 30, I realized, you know, what, why? Why? And I had friends in that were 10 years older than me that were still engaged in drinking as an aspect of fun. And still, and just the money I used to spend on it. Yeah. What, what did you think about alcohol back then? If you, in one sentence, 
I thought of alcohol as fun. And now how do you think about alcohol? Recovery. Because <laughs> so, you drink, you have to recover from it. Oh, that kind of recovery. <laughs> either, whether it be a hangover or what you mm-hmm. said to somebody while you were drunk. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the time that you lost. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know that I, my how to cut back business, yeah. right? Where I teach women how to stop doing, overdoing the things that hurt them. Um, most of my clients come from, come to me for either weight loss or like overeating or over drinking. Some come for overspending others, quite a few actually for overworking. That's a thing that that's becoming yes. more common. Yes. Uh, and a couple here or there would be like over scrolling, right? Like consumption of social media or YouTube. Um, so, but, but predominantly overeating and over drinking, and they're both the same kind of the same vein of thinking, right? It's like, um, first off societally as a culture, we are taught that these are two very acceptable forms of consumption, alcohol Mm -hmm. and food, right? They're readily available. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's almost hard to dodge it. Oh, it's, it's so prevalent that I'm trying to think of just two examples that would be congruent. So if there's cupcakes, let's say you do a store visit, right? If there's cupcakes at the store and they offer you a cupcake and everybody else is eating cupcakes and you say no to the cupcake, someone is going to ask you why you're saying no to the cupcake. What's wrong with you, Katie? Just have a cupcake, (laughs) right? I don't, and you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings and say no to the cupcake. Oh, look at that thought. Like, right. I'm more of a donut person myself. Okay. But... So let's say they have donuts and you're, just like, I'm you're like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. someone's going to like push a donut down your throat. Right. And almost literally, <laughs> and alcohol is the same way. If you were to say, no, it's what's wrong with you. It's yeah. there's something wrong with you. And so when, in fact, the question is, why are you eating the cupcake? Let's just, just talk about why you're eating a cupcake. But let's talk about why you're drinking, but that's not how, but you can't say that to someone you're not allowed. Right. And so it just, it's so fascinating that like, if you're doing the thing that's healthy and now if you choose not to, there's something wrong with you, that's the society we live in. So it makes sense that we all kind of even get into this little trap of even entertaining the idea of alcohol or excessive sugar, right? Because those are two concentrated forms of substances that don't exist in nature naturally. And nature gives you fruit. (laughs) Nature gives you like sour berries and those have sugar and they would be considered so sweet if you didn't have condensed forms of sugar like we do. That's interesting. Right? Like you would never find that much condensed sugar in one item in one bite anywhere out in the world in nature. Salt is the same way. Like you'd have to like go to the ocean and get some sea salt or go to the Himalayas and find some salt. Like you don't find salt just everywhere. So, or fat for that matter. Yeah. Or oils. Yeah. Those are, these are like the three most rare food items in the world. And yet we have them to excess available all the time. So it makes sense. One, that they're highly addictive 
because your brain just goes off the charts with both of them. You get a dopamine hit with both items. And when society makes it so easy and also so pressureful to like, easy to consume it, easy to find it, pressure from every angle to, to do that. It makes sense how we train ourselves into doing it, right? You like, you have every cue to do it. And then you have the reward of eating or drinking it. Voila. Yeah. And recipe for addiction. Yeah. And when you have back on sugar, you get sick. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your body, your body's like, oh, we don't like that anymore. But just the way that the way that you train your brain is the same way that we untrain our brain and, and our body like the chemicals in our brain, I want to say, right. It's psychological and it's physiological. The physiological stuff will like a, you could call it like a withdrawal or a detox type period, both with alcohol and with sugar, you have that physiological withdrawal. And then the psychological withdrawal is the one that actually takes longer. And so I I teach a lot of clients about how to completely eliminate desire because desire comes from your mind. You're thinking a thought that like alcohol is fun and then you have desire in your body. Your mouth starts watering. You're anticipating a good time. And then your actions, you go after, you know, you, you buy it, you open a bottle, you make plans, you drink it. And then the result is you have fun. (laughs) Alcohol is fun. And then there's some consequences you don't like so much. Right. (laughs) So, so then, you know, really it was the alcohol is fun thought that was propelling you to drink and probably some other things going on. But a lot of the times we don't even realize that we think alcohol is fun or that we equate a liquid, an inanimate object sitting on a table as fun. Yes. We don't realize that we are the one that create, we're the ones that create fun we're the ones. And a lot of people see alcohol as I've had a busy day. I've had a hard week. I need a drink. Mm-hmm. Do you really need a drink or do you just need to meditate? Right. hundred percent. Right. That's just, and that's also a habitual type thing. Yeah. I love, I love teaching about, um, urges and how to remove desire for things so that like, if I threw, um, I don't know, a carton of cigarettes down in front of you. Oh, do you smoke? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm allergic to it. I actually have to walk away from people I know who smoke. If whether yes. it's a client, so I'm like, hey, I'll I'll meet you in the door through the door because I'm literally allergic to what you're doing. Me too. I if I threw down a carton of cigarettes in front of you, that same ugh that you just did. Yeah. That's where you can get, or just nothing, right? You have no, you have no desire for it whatsoever. You have like a negative desire for it. <laughs> you like despise it, but like, imagine having that for what's something that you would like to cut back on sugar. You mentioned it. Okay. So like, imagine that someone placed donuts in front of you and you just literally had no thoughts about it. Like it wasn't, it was like a non-issue. Yeah. Right. That's what people do when they sit down for dinner at a restaurant and they like have the whole dinner and then they bring the dessert menu and they're like, no, I'm good. They, they have not thought about dessert. They're not entertaining dessert. They have no desire for it, 
that's like, but for some of us, we've been looking forward to it. We were looking at the dessert menu while we were getting our water. You know, <laughs> we we're like, we we're like, oh, I already, I don't know what I'm having for my entree, but I know what I'm having for dessert. So yeah, it's like, meal. yes, or we're sitting there resisting it, telling ourselves I'm not allowed to have it, thinking about it the whole meal, or we're looking forward to it the whole meal. This happens with alcohol too. So it's like, that's the desire, right? That's like the mental chatter that's going on back and forth in your brain the whole time you're sitting there eating. Well, for other people who don't have an issue with sugar or with alcohol, let's say they just don't drink. They don't think about it. There's no mental drama going on. There's no brain energy being invested into whether or not they're going to get the dessert or the drink, et cetera, how long the drink is taking. When are we going to finally get dessert? they're sitting there connecting with the other humans they're with. They're sitting there enjoying what they have in front of them. Yeah. It's a very different, like, and that's where you, that's where you can get with things that you over desire because the issue is not that like you're around alcohol too much, or you had those friends that drink all the time. That wasn't it. It was your internal desire for alcohol and what you thought it brings you not realizing that you were the one creating the fun the whole time. That crazy. It's almost like a mask. Mm-hmm. Say, I can only have fun if I have this in front of me. Right. You like chain your own self with your thoughts. But the fun part about being human is that you get to decide what you think. That is true. And would you say mm-hmm. that desire is maybe the greatest obstacle that many people face when they're trying to heal from an addiction or infidelity? Actually, no. Desire is way further down the list. I think the thought for the thought that gets in most of my clients ways is that there's two things I would say. The first one is that they have this idea that it's impossible for them. That's not going to work for me. Nothing's worked in the past to help me lose weight. Nothing's worked in the past. Maybe they've tried like all these different ways to stop drinking. I used to, um, you know, what's like drink a glass of water in between every drink (laughs) or like, uh, I would tell myself I was going to limit myself to two or three or something like that. And then of course, when you're at two or three drinks, you're just like, throw it out the window. Right. Yeah. Um, or I would already far gone. It's hard to cut. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to stick with beer or (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I, I did all these different things to try and you know, or like, just not go out, just say no to every invitation. I'm not going to be around it. I'm not in it. And you know, it was just so many different things that I tried. And I, so I would tell myself, this is not possible for me. I've done all the things, nothing works for me. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken. My off switch doesn't work like everybody else's with weight loss. It's the same way we do all these diets and we try all these things. And we're like, we get this new exercise program and we hire a trainer and we do our friends shakes and, you know, we like get the supplements and all these external fixes. Right. And we might even lose the weight, but then we gain it all back because the root cause was never solved. We were looking outside of us for something that's like, can only be found within. And so I think the the main obstacle always comes up. It comes up somewhere in our work together that they think they're a special snowflake, that it's impossible for them to be the person who weighs 135 pounds. 
It's impossible for them to be the person that goes to dinner with all of their friends and doesn't even care about the wine. Right. And so it's, so it's like that first thing. Now, the second thing I think that's like a really big obstacle for people. What was I thinking? I'm talking about like the obstacles, but desires down on the list. It's not necessarily people having a desire for something that they don't think they have desire for, or maybe people creating, especially a weight loss. I think if you give up certain foods, you just put them on a pedestal. Okay. Yes. Neutrality is the second issue. We are so conditioned to believe that things are good and bad. We bucket things because your brain would go crazy if it wasn't able to categorize stuff. Okay. But what happens is the whole gray area in the middle, the neutral part, um, gets lost. So because we decide that something is good or evil, it means if we want it, there's something wrong with us, but, or if we have it, we've been bad. If we're, if we decide to have it, we've been bad. And and there's something about human nature where if we're not allowed to have it, we just turn into little rebels. We're like, we want it even more. Yes. If you, I think that's why Americans are more likely to have drinking problems than other parts of the world where there is no drinking age. Yes. I remember I had, I used to be friends with all the foreign exchange students in high school. I loved, I just loved people from different cultures. And so I had this one best friend from Austria. Her name was Geraldine. And when she came, she was 16. She's like, Oh, I can drink at home. Like we can drink at 16. And I was just blown away by this. <laughs> and I remember thinking even back then I'm in high school and I was thinking, cause my mother is like an alcoholic and has always been my entire life. And I remember thinking back then, I wonder if these people I see getting in trouble at 21, 23, 25, getting into accidents and, you know, sometimes killing people and stuff like that. I wonder if they had been able to drink when they were younger and and their lives were more guarded, you know, if they would have got that out of their system before they were adults with real, like real consequences on the line, as opposed to when you're a kid and you still have generally for, for most of us, the protection of your home. Right. Yes. And it is just, just so such an interesting thing. Yeah. But it's like, oh, it's off limits. So now there's just even more desire for it. Same thing happens when you go on a diet, you're like, I'm not allowed to have this stuff. And instead of focusing on what you do, like getting what you love and want, you think to yourself, it's like restriction, 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 and willpower runs out. You exhaust yourself through the restriction and then you binge you like give in to the max, right? Then you call yourself a failure. <laughs> You've ate all the bad things. So you're a bad person now. And it's just this good and bad thing. But if you, if you get really honest, again, the food, the donuts, they're inanimate objects that are neutral sitting on a table. Alcohol is an inanimate object. It's just neutral. It's not good or bad. It's just there. It is just there. And what's fascinating is like this concept, when you learn the meta skill of bringing something down to the neutral thing that it is, 
you can use this skill across your entire life. Nothing, people are not good or bad. They just are. Humans are not good or bad. They just are. Like you have the propensity to be amazing and you have the propensity to be a monster. We all do. You know, like I guarantee you every serial killer out there had some good quality. (laughs) Most of them come across as very charming. Yeah. And every angel, every like mother Teresa had something, you know, there was some character flaw in there once in a while. So you're just like, everybody has the capability of being like good and bad. You get to hold all of it at the same time. And so that when you come, like when you just bring things down to what they are, it makes it so much easier to just see like, oh, that's just alcohol until I decide to think a thought that motivates me to pick it up, pour it in my mouth and swallow it. Okay. Until that happens, it's just an inanimate neutral object. There's nothing good or bad about this food or this alcohol. And I think that's really difficult. I I watch people really wrestle with that, but when they get it, it's just sky's the limit because then they don't just stop at the alcohol. They're like, well, I want to, I want to lose weight now, or I want to stop scrolling. And then, then they know they have the power. That's that makes sense. Sense. <laughs> that makes sense. People are getting in their own way mm-hmm. when it comes to their goals. And some of these things that they're using are distractions. I gave up Facebook, cut it off completely yes. because I knew it was a distraction. It had some great qualities to it. So I'll ask you a question. How, because a lot of people would love to do that, but they don't know how, and they've tried, right? So it hasn't worked for them. How did you stop? So you decided I'm going to get rid of Facebook. And then what happened? Just deactivated it. Mm -hmm. And the first few days I kept during my break, looking for my Facebook app, but I uninstalled it. Mm Mm-hmm. And even I was having a conversation with my mom the other day. She said, Hey, did you see this on Facebook? And I was thinking, Oh, wait a second. I haven't had Facebook in 10 days. So it's honestly, I wouldn't say it's a non-issue for me because I still, I think I miss out on some forms of communication without it. Mm-hmm. But what I'd like to do is when I go back into it and it's, it's basically my observation of Lent, when I get back on, I would only check it maybe on my computer instead of on my phone. Cause I'm less likely to grab and scroll. Right. Okay. So I think like in that experiment, what would you say was prompting you to get on Facebook? What were you finding in Facebook that made it so compelling? I think it was social because I'm keeping up with people that I did Daisy level Girl Scouts in or people I went to high school with. Hey, I wonder what they're doing. So right. I found it as a means of connection. And these are people that I knew before cell phones even existed. Perfect. So you wanted to feel connection. Yes. And how are you feeling connection now without it? Because are you missing connection? I don't think I am. I think I'm finding other ways to connect. Maybe right. through phone. Yeah. I think like when it comes to these types of things, it's always worth asking yourself, especially when you're struggling, like you've tried many times, ask yourself, what am I getting out of this? Because everybody, you want to be like nothing. 
I'm not getting anything about with, um, from overeating sugar. I'm not getting anything from alcohol. I'm not getting anything from over scrolling. That's why I want to stop. No, 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 no. Pause. <laughs> it's giving you something you want or else you wouldn't keep doing it. Right. Like even if it's faux or like hollow connection, what it, like, what is it giving you? And you want to get really clear because then you can ask yourself, well, where else can I find this in a way that's more authentic, like genuine, right? Where can I get connect the connection, real connection that I'm craving? Because when you analyze the connection you get on social media, it's generally really superficial. It's not even actually connecting. You're putting a heart, like you're making one click towards this person's life. That's um, right. Right. Like, is that even real? And so when you get really honest with yourself, like if it, is it the connection I'm seeking? Is it a sense of loneliness that I'm having? And I'm trying to like, fill, like fill that need or is the sugar, where's the sugar, the desire for sugar coming from? It's not just that you're addicted to sugar. Yes. When you eat something sweet, it, I wouldn't say it makes me say happy, but it's satisfying and that releases a ton of dopamine. That's that's true. But then mm-hmm. there is the sugar crash afterwards. Yes. Right. There's the consequence of that result. When you ask yourself, like what other things provide me that sense of dopamine, that little happiness while challenging yourself, when you do something difficult, even if it's slightly difficult, you also get a hit of dopamine. Like your body is wired to reward you to do something over and over. Right. So it's that little reward. Well, you can go eat the sugar, get the dopamine release that feels good and get a result you don't like, or you can go do something else, right? Even something small. Um, sometimes like, what are those little puzzles that people do Sudoku or <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Or the 3d puzzles even, or even Legos. Oh, just anything, anything that's like, you're completing something, you know, you can also get little small hits of dopamine. And so, but the result of that, let's take a bigger challenge, right? Like maybe I want to come write an Instagram post or, um, oh, I'm just trying to think of something else. That's a little bit more challenging for me. Sitting still is challenging. So let's say I go sit still for like five minutes and meditate or just think on something or write, write, you know, then even just that. And I get up and I'm like, yes, I did it, you know, and that's like a little dopamine hit, but I like the result of that way better than the result of the dopamine that came from eating sugar. So it's like, choose your, you know, choose your dopamine hit sort of, it's like, what result would you prefer? And we can get way deeper on that, but no, that's really good advice. Really sound because I'm sure people will kind of, and people don't necessarily think really hard about the decisions that they make. Mm -hmm. If they are trying to eliminate sugar, alcohol, binge watching, they can go back to that. Listen, there's a lot of books about dopamine addiction and how to escape that. Oh, not that you want to escape dopamine. You need that baby. You want that in your life. It's a very good thing, (laughs) right? That like getting out of the, the foe, all the ways that our culture has made it super easy to get, to get all of these yummy chemicals going on, like these endorphins and serotonin and dopamine, um, going into that because it's stealing your life. 
you were made to contribute more to the world. You're capable of contributing so much to the world. Only you. You have like just a unique experience of life, right? Like there's people out there who need what you have to offer. But if you're sitting there scrolling or you're going out every night drinking, or you're just bummed about even getting out into the world because you don't love your body, we're all missing out on you. You're stealing your own life from yourself and giving it to whatever company made whatever thing you're putting in your mouth or scrolling in your hand. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> they're getting that and you're stealing what's available to you. Right. And so I just, I don't know, go read all these books. It's so brilliant. Just, just dopamine itself is such a fun neurochemical, but that's beautiful advice. I think it's just for people to be reminded they are important to the world and they can give their best to the world. Yes. If you would like, tell us where we can find you and where we, how we can work with you. Um, I am on Instagram. That's my favorite medium, but it's Rose Watson coaching is my handle. You can also find me at Rose Watson coaching on Facebook. And I am mid design in the healed wife course, which is going to be amazing. Um, and that is also part of the healed wife's club, a community that will support women who are going through the course and healing themselves in their marriage. And that focuses on just healing betrayal trauma and, uh, the healed is where that is housed. And you can join the wait list right now. And where else am I rosewatsoncoaching.com. <laughs> And then my, my previous business, howtocutback.com and all of my materials are still there. Wonderful. Well, Rose, thank you so much for being with us today. You have provided so much amazing value, so much amazing advice for everyone to heal here. So if you guys like, go ahead and follow Rose and check out what she has to offer. I love that you said heal and here. <laughs> Come heal. Let's heal ourselves. Thank you so much, Katie. Yes. Thank you. are listening to For Better Self and Net Worth. In this community, we think you'll find your self-worth comes before your net worth and everything else. We also think you were designed to go after the life you want by ditching societal norms, knowing exactly who you are as an individual, and going after your unique purpose here on this earth. Every week, Ella interviews an entrepreneur that designed the life they wanted among the challenges, naysayers, and leaving outside their comfort zone. Or you're going to hear straight from Ella, where she talks about the important lessons she's learned in life and how she's achieved the overall happiness she has. This is Ella, the host for Better Self and Net Worth. Based out of Nashville, Tennessee, she makes every single day an adventure. You'll always find her right here behind the microphone, sharing all her thoughts with all of you. And we appreciate you listening and hope you enjoy this episode.